Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 through 13. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Marian died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranate, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you will bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now I am. Good morning, and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. Whether you're here in the West service with me or over in the East service or watching online, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm very excited to continue our sermon series looking at the life of Moses and, in particular, seeing how the life of Moses points us forward to the person and work of Jesus. Because after all, the Bible is one big story about what God is doing in human history through the person and work of Jesus to gather people to himself. And we're seeing how the story of Moses points us forward to that greater story. In fact, if you have a Bible, I'd love to ask you to open it to Numbers chapter 20. Take out your phone, your tablet, get to Numbers 20. However you can, if you're watching online, just open that web browser and Google Numbers 20. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, I know the book of Numbers, that might be an intimidating one to find. In the Bibles we provide, both here in the sanctuary in the pew in front of you or over in East Hall in the back, it's on page 119. Starts there, 
and ends on page 120. So if you want to find it uh, there, if you can count, you can get there, 119, 120, and read along. And as you're turning to Numbers 20, let me hold out to you an outline that I want to use to kind of guide our time together. Three points, and they go like this. I want to talk about close is not enough. Close is not enough. Close is really not close at all. And number three, close doesn't matter. Okay, close is not enough. Close is really not close at all. And close doesn't matter. All right, let's start with the first one. Close is not enough. Let me catch you up on the story of Moses and Israel up to this point. Because understanding what has already happened is really helpful for making sense of this passage. So Moses was called by God in Exodus chapter 3 through a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And God told Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you are going to set my people free. And when you free them, you're going to lead them to a land that I have for them, a promised land. And when you get there, you are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have peace and prosperity and you're going to flourish And through your flourishing, all the nations will know that I am God. And they will come to know me because of my goodness to you. And God empowers Moses to accomplish this mission. So that Moses goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world at this time. Using plagues and miracles and wonders to convince Pharaoh eventually to let Israel go. God uses Moses at the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army is charging in because he's changed his mind and God's people's backs are against the sea. God uses Moses to split the Red Sea and they walk across. Moses will ask God and God will drop bread from heaven to feed them, get water from a rock to quench their thirst. Moses goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai and talks to God and comes down with God's law and God's plan for this promised land. Moses is this incredible leader, this incredible hero, this guy who enjoys a special relationship with God. He's a guy whose career is marked by success and by triumph, but not in this story. In this story, something sad happens. The people of Israel are complaining. Stop me when you've heard, if you've heard that before, right? Seems like every story starts with them complaining. It's like being in a car with a bunch of teenagers. Sorry, that comes from a personal space. (laughs) And they start again, oh, we're thirsty. Oh, it would have been better if we had just died earlier. It would have been better if we were in Egypt, right? You just brought us out here to kill us. This is the way a lot of the stories have started. And Moses then hears their grumbling. They want water. Moses can't make water appear any more than you can or I can. So he goes to God and he says, hey, they're complaining again. They're thirsty. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand in front of a rock and I want you to command water to come out of the rock and water's going to come out and then they're going to know that I'm God and that I take care of them. And Moses has had enough at this point. Okay, Moses has just had enough. It's like me when I'm driving on family vacation and I say, if one more person asks me how long till we get there, that's Moses. So he gathers everyone up and before he deals with the rock, he looks at them and he says, you rebels. He's angry with them. He's frustrated 
He's he wanting to, to insult them. You losers. You people who don't believe. You rebels. And then he doesn't speak to the rock. He takes his staff and he hits the rock twice. He's angry. He's making emphasis. You rebels. And water comes out. But later when Moses talks to God, God says to Moses, Moses, because you've done this, because you didn't obey me, because you have sinned, you don't get to go in to the promised land. Now, I want you to feel the impact of that. I mean, way back in Exodus 3, God said, Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you. You're going to face down Pharaoh. We're going to split the Red Sea. We're going to get bread from heaven, water from a rock. You're going to talk to me on a mountain. All these amazing things. But the whole point of all of those things was to get to the promised land. And God says, Moses, because of what you've done, you will not get to go in to the promised land. Moses. Moses. In fact, Moses will die on the outskirts of the promised land. He'll get close. He'll get close. He'll even get to see into it. But he never actually gets to go in. Now, the reason why I want to stop and think about that, the reason why that's so important is because the prevailing thought in our culture, the prevailing thought of those who are around or adjacent to Christianity, in fact, it's quite possible the prevailing thought for many in this room right now is that in the end, if you're good enough, God will let you into heaven. That is what most people think. That in the end, when you die and you stand before God and you face his judgment, that God is not unreasonable. That God is going to grade on a curve. That God is going to, to weigh out your life. And as long as there's more good than bad, as long as the net effect of your life was positive, as long as you were basically good, he's going to let you in. But here's the problem. This story is a missile at that worldview. Because Moses is Moses. He's Moses. You might have a pretty high opinion of yourself. I've been known to think highly of myself a time or two. But even I know I'm not Moses. You know you're not Moses. We didn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh. We didn't split the Red Sea. We haven't spoken to God on the top of Mount Sinai. God didn't call us with a burning bush. Moses has served God, obeyed God, loved God, led for God. But in the end, God will not overlook his sin. God does not grade him on a curve. God will not let him in. He gets close, but close is not enough. So the question for you is this. If God wouldn't give Moses a wink and a nod, if God wouldn't let Moses slide, if God wouldn't weigh out the balance of Moses' life and say, you know what, you, you got some wrong, but, but you got more right. If God wouldn't look at Moses and say, after all you've done, if God didn't say to Moses, Moses, I know you. I know you're basically good. If God wouldn't let Moses in because of his sin, then why? Why would you and I think that he will let us slide? 
Why would you and I think that in the end, he's going to be okay with us? He's going to give us a wink and a nod as long as we were basically good. Well, this story is telling us he won't. He won't. Close is not enough. Everything Moses has done, everything he's been through, in the end, he doesn't get to go in because of his sin. And in the end, no matter what you and I have done, no matter what we say about ourselves, no matter what we think we've accomplished, no matter what our resume, our reputation, who will vouch for us, in the end, like Moses, close is not enough. And I've been praying for you this week that you would hear that in a spirit of love, because it's not my desire to offend you, but it is my desire to let this story awaken you that you might possibly be believing a lie, pinning your hopes to something that won't help you. Now, I know that you may be wondering, is this fair? I mean, after all that Moses has done, right? I mean, this is Moses. And what does he do? He, he calls them rebels. I mean, I can think of a few worse things. I mean, in my house, there is a list of words you're not allowed to say. I've been told it doesn't matter even if you're the dad. But rebels is not one of those. And what does he do? He smacks a rock in anger. I mean, I have done worse than this in traffic before. And so have you. So he doesn't get to go into the promised land because of this? That leads me to my second point, which is to say close is really not close at all. You see, we, we tend to think of Moses' sin as very small, as really not that significant. But the story of, of Moses, the story of the Bible, the story that we've read so far, is inviting us to see that it's really much bigger than we think. Let me give you three ways that Moses' sin is different than you think. Three reasons God cannot, will not overlook the sin of Moses. Number one, it's bigger than you think. What does Moses do? He gets frustrated. He gets angry. He yells. He screams. He calls them rebels. He beats a rock. Big deal, right? Except that anger has been a big deal in Moses' life. Do you remember why he was a shepherd in Midian in the first place? Why God spoke to him in a bush out in the middle of nowhere? It was because he was a fugitive. Why was he a fugitive? He had gotten angry and killed a man. In fact, if you read the story of Israel, you will see that time and time again, Moses gets furious. He gets angry. He has a violent temper. Even when he comes down the mountain and they've built the golden calf, he is angry. And you might even say righteously, except for Aaron looks at him and Aaron isn't even afraid of God. Aaron says to Moses, please don't be angry with me. Because what happens if Moses gets angry with you? You see, We tend to think about our sin as isolated incidents that really aren't that big. But the truth is, the pattern of our lives, the the template of our lives, is that they're actually much bigger than we think. This is like when someone lies to you for the seventh or eighth time, and they say to you, get over it. It's one little lie. And you're saying to them, no, it's not. No, it's not. 
It's one little part of a bigger story. How dare you? Don't you dare reduce what you've done down to this one little thing. You see, Moses' sin wasn't one time of getting angry. It was a pattern. It was a way of living. It was who he was. When Moses got mad, you went hiding. The second reason God can't overlook it is it's more personal than you think. You have to understand this. Moses gets mad. He calls Israel rebels. Listen, God will call them worse in the Old Testament. You read it for yourself. He beats a rock. But God isn't focused on what he says or what he does. For God, what Moses has done is personal. Look with me at Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. Look at what God says to Moses. He doesn't talk about what he called them. He doesn't talk about the rock. Instead, this is what he says. Chapter 20, verse 12. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy, In the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Do you see what God says? Moses, because you didn't believe me. You see, God is doing something with Israel. Moses knows this. God is teaching Israel to trust him. The journey to the promised land is about God building a resume or a reputation of trust with Israel so that when he tells them to do something crazy, like, I don't know, march around Jericho with nothing but their trumpets, and they're like, ah, it seems weird, right? They need to know that God can be trusted. So if Israel goes for a walk and they go, oh, we're thirsty, and somebody goes, look, a well, That isn't teaching them anything. That's just finding water. God wants them to ask him when he gets thirsty. He wants them to go, oh my goodness, where are we going to get water? There's nowhere. There's no hope. It'd be better that we died. So that when he gets water from a rock, they will realize they can trust God. Moses gets angry because his primary concern is not that people would trust God, but that people wouldn't bother him. That's why he calls them rebels. Rebels to who? To him. You see, God is saying, Moses, you are robbing me of my glory. You aren't trusting me. You're not listening to me. You see, you see, when we sin, we tend to think of it as just breaking a rule. Big deal. You, you shouldn't do this, but I did. You should do this, but I didn't. Big deal. Get over it. But for God... It's deeply personal. When we live life our own way, we are saying to God, you can't be trusted. You aren't worth listening to. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't want what's best for me. You are not kind. You are not wise. You are not just. You are not loving. You are not good. It isn't just a rule. It isn't just a mistake. It isn't just a thing. It's deeply, deeply personal to God. Here's the third reason God can't overlook it. It's more damaging than you think. God has told Israel, I'm leading you to a land, and and that land is going to be a place where you flourish 
There's going to be milk and honey, peace and prosperity. You're going to flourish, and I'm going to use my goodness to you and your flourishing as an example to every watching nation. You're going to love it there. It's going to be amazing unless Moses is in charge there. You see, it's not going to be the land God described if Moses is in charge because Moses is an angry, tyrannical, violent leader at his worst. Every day in the promised land that Moses is there is one he could potentially ruin. Amy and I this weekend went to Playhouse Square to see the Temptations show. It was great, by the way. I had no idea all those songs were by the Temptations. I really didn't. I, was, I went there going, I don't know any of these songs. And they start going, I know this one, right? What's amazing throughout the history of the Temptations is they have had a number of people be part of the group and then out of the group. And every time they had to kick someone out of the group, it was incredibly hard for them because that was their friend, that was their brother, that was someone they had come up with. That was someone who had contributed to what it meant to be the Temptations. But but they would always reach this inner struggle where they would say, hey, we, we want to overlook the flaws and faults of this person. We love this person. We like this person. We value this person. We want to get past it. And yet at a, some, at a certain point, valuing this person is coming at the cost of the group. If we value this person so much that we let them stay, everyone will suffer. That's Moses and the promised land. I mean, think about it. The logic goes, in the end, if you're good, God will let you into heaven. But what we mean is if you're mostly good, right? We don't mean all the way good. We mean mostly good. None of us think we're all the way good. So what we mean is, in the end, if you're mostly good but some bad, God will let you in. So heaven is a place full of mostly good, somewhat bad people. What would you call a place full of mostly good, but somewhat bad people? You know what you'd call it? Earth. It wouldn't be heaven. Do you see that? If, if God overlooks your flaws in mine, then he's filling heaven with people who in the end will corrupt it, will destroy it, will make it not be heaven anymore. And God says, Moses, this kind of leadership, this is not going to cut it in the promised land. This is not what I promised Israel. This is more damaging than you think. You see, here's the thing. When we think about our sin, we think about it as small. But it's so much bigger than we think. It's so much more personal than we think. It's so much more damaging than we think God, if he's good at all, if he's just at all, if he's merciful at all, he can't overlook it. You know that Pastor Joe is a mentor to me, more like a, a father figure to me. I love him dearly. And so God help me, I have a prop. <laughs> It was actually his idea. <laughs> well, I have this little plant here, and this is how we think of our sin. You know, if you saw this in your yard, you might even overlook it. Not in my neighborhood, you wouldn't, but in other neighborhoods. You would overlook it. You'd step over it. No big deal. It's insignificant. But when you lift this up, you see it's a lot bigger than you think. Its roots go deeper 
than you think. So you see your internet history, but God sees more. You see you cutting a few corners, but God sees more. You see it as losing your temper, but God sees more. And in the end, if this will keep Moses out of the promised land, Moses, then it's going to keep you out of heaven too. There's a guy who said to me after the 830 service, boy, after those first two points, I didn't like you very much. (laughs) But we don't stick to two points around here, so let me give you a third one. And that is close doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. You see, we think that God loves on the basis of performance evaluation because that's how we've been loved. And that's how we tend to love. Judging and evaluating People rising, people falling, us rising and falling in the eyes of other people. So we assume that if God loves us at all, it must be performative. He must be keeping score. He must be keeping track. And in the end, your score is everything. And, you know, there's no reason to to thumb your nose at that kind of thinking. It makes up most of the religion of the world. But the Bible is not that story. It is not a story of God loving the people who are worth it. The Bible's a different kind of story. In fact, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. It captures this so well. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. Not in the Bible. It's what we Christians call it because we love to come up with catchy, not so catchy names for things. And if you read Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Noah did this, and David did this, and Joshua, and Abraham, and and, and Samson, and Deborah, and on and on. In fact, at the very end, he gets to what I call the junk drawer, and he just is like, and there's more people that I can't even think of, and I don't even know who have done amazing things for God. And it reads like you would say, these are the people who make it into heaven. These are the people that God loves. That's how it reads until you get to Hebrews 12. And of course, you know that the original writer wasn't putting chapters and verses in. So everything he's saying in Hebrews 11 is leading to this. And this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also. And in that moment, every time I read it, I can find myself leaning in and going, let us also what? What? Well, what do you expect them to say? Let us also be the best versions of ourselves that we might be accepted. Let us also be more good than bad so that we might find our way in. Let us also be better than those around us so that God, when he chooses who to love, would choose Uh, So that's what you'd expect, right? I mean, it's the hall of faith. That's what you'd expect. But this is what he says instead. And if you hear this, maybe for the first time, I promise it'll change your life. Listen to what he says. Let us also, let us join them in laying aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen to this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and the finisher, the beginning and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. You see, the Bible is a story of God knowing that if you have to earn your way in, nobody's going to make it. So the Bible is a story of a God knowing if he's searching the earth for someone who is lovable because of their moral performance, he's not going to love anyone. The Bible is not a story of how close can you get to heaven. The Bible is a story of a God who came looking for us. In the person and work of Jesus, Jesus, the only man with no sin, a citizen of heaven, the only one who could be in heaven and never corrupt it, never destroy it, never make it something less than heaven. Jesus comes to earth and lives righteously, living a life that God can be proud of. In fact, when Jesus is baptized, God says from heaven, this is my son. I am pleased with him. Jesus is the one guy who can earn his way into heaven, but he didn't come to do that. He came to die on a cross. Why? Well, the Bible says that God made him become our sin, our plant and our root. So he wasn't just, he became not only the guy who looked at that website you looked at last night, but the guy whose entire internet history condemns him. Not just the person who lost his temper, but the entire pattern of violent anger that you have dealt with. Jesus became our sin, came up under the judgment of God and died. In fact, as he died, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became the one on whom God closed the door. So that three days later, when he rose from the dead, vindicated for his righteousness, he might not only enter the door, but take us with him. See, Christianity is not about believing that good people go to heaven, mostly good people. In the end, God will turn his back. In the end, a wink and a nod will get you in. Christianity is the belief that there is nothing about me that would get me anywhere close to heaven, but that Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, has lived in my place, died in my place, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down on the throne of heaven, and he says, I can come because I'm with him. You know, in the end, Hebrews 11 says, Moses made it in. Not to the promised land in the Middle East, but into the kingdom of God in heaven. Why? Because he was looking to Jesus, the same way you can get there. We sing this so beautifully in my favorite song that we sing. It's an old one, Rock of Ages. Do you know it? There's a verse in that song that I love. It says this, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me 
Savior, or I die. There is no one here or watching online whose sin God will overlook. You are not good enough, but you don't have to be. Grab hold of Jesus. Trust wholly in him. Let me pray for us. Father God, what an amazing God you are. What a great gospel you have given us. It's good news. We cannot earn, we cannot achieve, but we don't have to. Holy Spirit, would you help us with the pride that says that's too easy, I I need to earn it, I need to achieve it. Show us the roots of our sin, how the depth of our sin, how we could never, and then lead us to grace. What an amazing God you are that the last, the very last way Moses leads us is by failing to get in and being a warning to all of us that we must join him in clinging not to our righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. In his name we pray, amen.